0: I grew up, but we didn't have a lot of money. Um, the people I saw with money, they were doctors. And so I was like, I guess I want to be a doctor too. How am I, a black man, supposed to click with a white guy 40 years older than me? He is never going to look at me and see himself when he was younger. I said, I, I didn't have a chance then. And there was always a lot of talk across the table, a lot of trash talk because the bankers would say, you lawyers work too hard. We go home after the end of the day, you got to go back to the office and do what we told you. And we're getting paid a about working on the west coast when you're coming from new york is that you get on that plane at six and it's only nine o'clock when you get to california and you have the whole day to work i thought this guy had lost his mind if i could wave a magic wand i would be a middle school teacher and a coach
1: Hello, welcome to the Dre and Smiley Podcast, The Inner Circle, where normal people living extraordinary lives share their experiences with you.
2: All right. So I'm excited to have our next guest on. I'll read a quick bio, then we'll jump right into it. Eugene Whitlock is the Chief People and Culture Officer at UC Berkeley, overseeing a 100-person HR department and championing a workplace where everyone can be themselves and feel like they belong. He is also an active member of governing boards and leadership councils in the field of human resources. Prior to UC Berkeley, Eugene served as vice chancellor of HR and General Counsel for the San Mateo County Community College District, where he found where he implemented equity practices in the hiring process. Eugene's career spans from corporate law to investment banking. And he holds an undergraduate degree from Stanford University and a law degree from the University of Michigan. He is also fluent in Spanish and German and a few other languages that we'll hear about in just a moment. Eugene, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
2: So let's go back. So um, in terms of, you know, your career path, you ended up working in HR. Before that, investment banking. Before that, law. Talk to us about how you... Went, how you, you know, made your way through those different careers,
0: and the catalyst to make the shift each time.
2: Sure. The, well, there wasn't
0: there wasn't really any method to my madness. I'd say I was just basically taking advantage of opportunities that were presented to me. And initially on in my career, I was one hundred percent guided by money. I wanted to make money, have as much money as I possibly could, and then. As I sort of got older and wiser, I guess you could say, I realized that money wasn't everything. You know, you see that in movies and TVs or probably somebody older in your life tried to tell you that. And you're like, you don't know because you, you have money. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you it isn't everything. Right. So going to undergrad, I was a biology major in undergrad and I wanted to be a doctor so I could be rich. When I grew up, But like, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, the people I saw with money, they were doctors. And so I was like, I guess I want to be a doctor too, without thinking a whole lot about what it meant to be a doctor. I land in college three years later, summer after my junior year, I go to University of Virginia for a summer program for black students who were interested in being doctors. You followed a doctor mm. around, you got to do a sample of what medical school would be like. And it wasn't for me. <laughs> it was more, I was studying biology and I didn't like it very much. Medical school looked very similar. And then they were like, it, and then after you graduate, you're an intern for this many years, a resident for a lot more years until you're finally like a full-fledged doctor. It was like another seven years out. And I, I really can't do this. <laughs> and oh, so right. then I went back without a plan. And I, like I wasn't ready to get a job. I hadn't even thought about getting a job. And some friends of mine were going to law school. And I said, okay I'll go to law school. I took the LSAT, the law school admissions test, did well. And I said, this is a sign. Then I absolutely loved going to law school and it made me think mm. this is where I should have been all along. I worked um, in, a, in a bunch of different places and in different countries as a lawyer and I really liked it. Eventually, I found my way to Silicon Valley during the dot-com heyday in the late 90s. and That really makes me feel old talking like that in the late 90s. <laughs> um, but when we were doing deals as the lawyers, our clients were investment bankers. And there was always a lot of talk across the table, a lot of trash talk, because the bankers would say, you lawyers work too hard. We go home at the end of the day. You got to go back to the office and do what we told you. And we're getting paid a lot more. Well, eventually right. I started to listen right. to, uh, to what they were saying to me. And, yeah, I took one of those jobs as an investment banker. I didn't think I was qualified to do it, but they're oh, you can learn what you need to know. You're fine. You got this. And I And I got the job. Did that for a couple of years. Until I eventually got laid off when the whole dot com thing stopped being so crazy and came mm. came back crashing down to earth, I survived two rounds of layoffs. Didn't survive the third, but it was also a little bit of blessing in disguise because even though I was making money, it was actually very soul sucking. And mm. you know, now that sounds like you know I'm giving advice to some younger person. You know, no, it really was for me very soul sucking. Yes, I was getting money, and that did make me happy in many regards but the job was really only about making money. And it wasn't about let's provide a good service. Let's do this thing to make something better. It was, let's close the deal and get paid. And that was was just a step too far for me. And so I didn't have a job. A friend of mine was working on a conference in Berlin for NATO and said she needed help to run the conference. And I was like, sure, I have nothing to do. And so I went to Berlin, was there for three weeks and I was like, this is cool, I like it here. And I still don't have a job. Let me see what I can work out here. And I was able to meet some people and ultimately get a job at a think tank over there in Berlin. I thought I was going to stay for six months. Ended up staying for three years because I liked it so much. Then eventually I got uh, homesick. I'm from California. I wanted to come back home. A friend of mine was working for the county of San Mateo as a lawyer. And he said, hey, we're actually hiring now. You'd love it here. I said, okay. I've never done that kind of legal work before. Oh, don't worry about it. You can figure it out. I'm like, okay. Take your word for it. I applied, got the job, and I loved it. And okay. I was there for a little bit more than nine years, you know, minding my own business, doing my job, liking my colleagues, liking the clients, liking the work. A lot of my clients were school districts, right? So I'm like, I'm helping schools. I'm helping kids. This isn't just about mm. making money for people who are probably already rich. And then one of my clients, the community college it was the, the head of HR. And he said he was retiring. And I said, congratulations. And he said, well, why don't you think about applying for my job? I said, well, I'm just the lawyer. I don't know anything about HR. He said, well, yes, you do. And what you don't know, you can figure it out. I said, okay. Yeah, yeah. Applied for the job, yeah, yeah. got the job. And I loved it. Because as the lawyer supporting him, you know, he would bring the bad stories to me. We have this problem. Help Mm -hmm. us solve it. This employee acted a Mm -hmm. fool. Help us fix it. Right. So I always Mm -hmm. saw the negative part of HR. But once I was there in the job, I got to saw the good parts of HR, which is developing professional development programs to support employees, working on creating a better workplace, all the DEI work that we got to do. And I I said, this is what I really like. This actually has meaning where I can do something so that when you go to work. You feel better during that day because of something I might have had something to do with. And, you know, when I think about legacy, like I have three kids now who are four, six, at eight, and they're going to go to school one day and they're going to work one day. And I I have this fantasy that I'm going to create a program today or do something and other people are going to copy it because they think it's Mm. so good and so beneficial. And then one day my kids are going to go somewhere and work and experience something that I had a part with creating. That's what I really want to do. And so that's what really keeps me motivated.
2: I love that. So tell me this, Eugene. What do you think? And it's hard to speak for someone else, uh, obviously. But what do you think that individual who you worked with saw in you that said, made him want to say, you know, I'm leaving this position. I think you, my lawyer, would be a good
0: HR person.
2: What do you suspect he drew up
0: on to make that decision? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I never actually thought about it. I always, oh, yeah. <laughs> I always thought about it in terms that we got along well and he liked me, but now that you asked the question, he must have thought I could actually do the job. Mm. And so if I think about it, I've known for a while because I've been told that I'm very good at persuading and presenting and that oral oral and written communication, which is something that mm. we actually learn in law school. And that's where I learned I was good at it because they told me. <laughs> and mm. so it must have been that. You know presence presentation where he thought i could do it and i assume he thought i was smart and like you said i could learn the parts that i didn't know okay makes sense makes sense
2: when
1: when you um your journey from you started from when you were in college you did the biology then you went into the law firm and then the investment banking and now you're in academia so you were in corporate America. You were in municipality with the city of San Mateo, and now you're in academia. What would you say is the, my, my friend Drake says the GBU, the good, the bad, the ugly. And what would you say would be the overall good for those three or the challenging things that you didn't know? Because a lot of us come from corporate America, but you have the luxury of being in corporate, municipality, and academia. So how would you say that transition from your
0: experiences, was it a fluid transition from one realm to the next? Yeah, the transitions were fluid, but it wasn't always what you would expect on the outside. So coming from college and then into law school, right? So I go to law school and in the summer when you're in law school, you go work in a law firm somewhere. And so my first summer I went to San Francisco. And so this is my first time really in a corporate office and like having a desk and having a secretary to support you. And then they would take us out to lunch, these fancy restaurants that I didn't even know existed. Right. So it was, it was a whole different thing. And I, and again, right. I'm, I'm after the money, right. And I'm like, this is, this is what's on the other side.
2: <laughs> right, this, this right. Is, this is the good life. This is what's waiting
0: for me. And so there were a lot of things about that, but sort of the bad slash ugly of the corporate world. And this was what I was talking about more with the investment banking is that it really is very bottom line. Right. yeah, we want you to feel good that you work here. You know, we care about you. But our mission is to make our clients happy mm. and our clients are trying to make money. We're trying to make money. And then, like, for me, making a lot of money back then was a $100,000 a year. But these lawyers are making millions of dollars a year. and These bankers are making money. So it's a whole different category of how much money they want in sure. order to be satisfied. That That's just something I, I, I can't relate to. Yeah, would I like to have a jet? Of course I would, right? But I'm not willing to like work like that and probably compromise my morals and ethics along the way in order to have that. And, and so that that's, I think, sort of the bad and the ugly. Academia and the public sector, so really working for the county. So this may sound unbelievable, but the government exists to provide support to people who need it the most, right? At the most fundamental level, that's what it's supposed to do. And at the county, we are sort of like that safety net And so, hey, how can you not want to be part of the safety net for people who need the most help? And that was really, you know, how we focused our work. And even though we were lawyers and lawyers get a sometimes deserved bad rap, our office was from the perspective we were led and told that, like, look, we're not here to like win cases all the time at all costs, and make people prove it. If the county does something wrong and a citizen suffers, it's our job to help make it right. We want it to be fair, but it's not about, ooh, they can't prove it. No, we want to do the right thing because we we owe this to the people who live here. And I love that. Like That was fantastic. Hmm. The other thing about that, separate from working there, is that our boss always said, your lives as human beings come before anything that happens here in the office. Your work is important. You need to get your work done, but take care of your life first. And I never heard anything remotely like that in the private sector. In part, it was... We're paying you a lot of money. We, we have your time. And I remember one time, so I, when I was based in New York, we had a client out in California and they were doing a merger deal. And it was go, we needed to get there on a Saturday morning. And the partner who was in charge of the deal said, All right, we're going to take the first flight out from New York and get there to LA. And so, like, the first flight is six o'clock in the morning. And the partner, he was all excited about it. I was like, The best thing about working on the West Coast when you're coming from New York that you get on that plane at six and it's only nine o'clock when you get to California and you have the whole day to work. I thought this guy had lost his mind. (laughs) Like, no, it was just a different perspective. Transitioning from the county to academia, one of the things that may not be as visible on the outside, so when you go to a college, right, you're just a student, you're coming here and there, but when you work there, it's a different dynamic and it's a very hierarchical institution. Faculty are on the top, then the students, and then the staff, and so everything works like that. We, so as an HR person or people who work there, we spend a lot of time trying to convince our employees that we love you all the same, but we don't. The faculty are at the top. The faculty are the ones who you know, win the prizes, bring in the big research money. There's a reason why they're at the top, but it's very hierarchical. And so you, you will encounter in a lot of academic institutions, particularly the big ones, where the faculty have a very are very entitled and that they look down on staff. And that creates, you know, unfortunate dynamics for a lot of employees who work there. They, you know, there are a lot of efforts around civility in the workplace at higher ed. And just the fact that we have to have these special programs that around civility tell you that there's probably a lot of issues, too. So that's when, that's the ugly, but the mission is fantastic. And where I work at Berkeley now, you know, we're the number one institution when it comes to lifting people from different economic classes, right? So lifting people up out of poverty and setting them on their path. For financial success that not only will sustain them, but also their families and the next generation, right? That That's a big deal, right? So it, it, it's a really, really meaningful place to work. And set, set that apart from, you know, you have people winning Nobel Prizes and doing all this, you know, world-changing stuff. Hey, it, it's very easy to get comfortable with that kind of mission, particularly when you compare it to like an investment bank or a law firm. Like, it just doesn't compare. You can't really beat a mission of work. You're helping people improve their lives at the same time they're doing stuff to change the world. You know, it doesn't get much better than that.
1: No, thank you for that. Because I, mean, I was always curious about the different dynamics. And, and you're, you're the first person I know that I've met that's been in all realms. So thanks for sharing that perspective. But I want to circle back to what Drake said in your intro. He mentioned that you speak several languages. You lived in Germany. You lived in... Uh, I think he said Venezuela. Can you talk about where you as a young man, as a child, did you say, I just want to live around the world? Or how did that come about? Living in different spots. And you, you mentioned that you, you were working in NATO, but a lot of or you, you had a job to do a conference. But a lot of times people may say, Well, I don't know if I can go to another country. I don't speak the language. That's a big risk. But were you in the eye of the storm and it didn't seem risky? And you just that it's part of your personality, Just I'm gonna just jump in and figure it out.
0: So I think I'm kind of wired a certain way. So I grew up in Southern California, there were people speaking Spanish and I just thought to myself, I wanna know what they're saying, so I wanna learn Spanish. And so middle school, high school, college, I took Spanish classes and in college, I I spent uh, two quarters in Spain. And then in after law school, I went and worked in Venezuela. So that's what you heard, I went and worked in Venezuela for four months. But in law school, I lived in the Netherlands. And while I was in the Netherlands, I learned how to speak Dutch. When I joined my law firm in New York, they asked me to go to Tokyo. So I was in Tokyo for seven months, learned a little bit of Japanese while I was there. And then at that NATO conference in Berlin, I stayed and moved to Berlin and lived in Berlin for three years, learned how to speak German while I was there and took a class, you know, studying Czech and learned how to speak French. So I just like the language thing because I think it's cool to understand what's going on. And I always feel really empowered when I'm walking someplace and somebody's speaking another language. And I know exactly what they're saying. And so, you know, moving to different countries, I would never say it was really my plan. Like, I, you know, there were kids in high school who did a study abroad for a semester or something like that. And it never occurred to me that I should go do that. At the same time, we had kids coming from other countries to live in our house, from Japan, from the Netherlands, from Ecuador. And I don't know why I never said to my mom, hey, can I go do that too? Which just never occurred to me. I, I cannot yeah. tell you why. But when I get when I got to college and then law school and then after that, you know, I took advantage of every opportunity that came to me. And so I was never nervous about going to another place because I always figured I would be able to figure like I think I can learn the language and I'll figure it out. And part and and not knowing what was going on was also part of the fun and trying to figure out how to do it. And when I moved to Japan, I'll never forget because so I got a taxi from the airport, right? I speak no Japanese at this point. I had taken like three hours of classes, but I'm not speaking Japanese. Right, And so flights from, I was coming from New York and flights get there at night. And I got there and I, I was hungry. I'm like, how am I going to get food, <laughs> right? Because I don't speak. And right. this was in Tokyo. And like, there's not, it's not, there are no signs in English at this time. This is the late 90s. And so I asked the taxi driver to take me to McDonald's. He had no idea what I was saying, but I saw the McDonald's. And I was like, McDonald's, McDonald's. And he, but in, in Japanese it's dude, And that sounds very different from McDonald's. It does. So that <laughs> that, that, that yeah. night I did not eat because I like I, I I was helpless. Fortunately, you know, I went work work was the very next day and I said, I need help. <laughs> right? right. And so I was yeah. able to eventually I was able to figure out and navigate my way around. But sure. Yeah, that was the most challenging time, but it, it always sorts itself out, right? I mean, that's sure. the worst thing that probably happened to me. And, and people tend to be very kind when they see that you're trying to learn and speak a language They'll help you figure things out. And so that's fun. Yeah. So you, you've traveled a lot It's um, based on what you've shared.
2: Let, let's just say that we realize that we need to move to another country just to, to live. We're going to uproot and move to another country to live. Which country would that be for, and and why for you?
0: Yeah, so I have an affinity for Germany one because I'm an efficient person and I like things to be orderly. And the stereotype is true; things there run very orderly. It can be the dead of winter when they say that bus is going to get there at six thirty-two a.m. The bus comes at six thirty-two a.m., so you can rely on the public services. It's very family oriented; lots of parks. It's just easy to get get around there, but there are not a whole lot of black people in Germany. There are, okay. but not a lot. So okay. like, I go back now in summer with my kids and I take them to a soccer camp. And most of the coaches at the soccer camp in Berlin are black. More, There's more black coaches at the soccer camp in Berlin than there are where I live in the Bay Area, which is okay. a whole other problem. But right. I think if I had <laughs> right. to choose and go to one place, it would probably be France in part because like I like the food. I like the language. There's lots of black people who live there from the African diaspora because of their history of colonialism. So Mm. in the times that I've gone there, I felt very comfortable. Like I can look around and see people who are like me. And and it's just, you know, it it feels very nice. So a lot of Americans will complain about French and the French have this attitude and that attitude. But if you speak Mm. a little bit of the language, I've, I've never been mistreated there because I was an American. Maybe they don't see me as like, The typical American, which is a good thing, right? Right, yeah, yeah. But yeah, France, I mean, they have the beaches, they have the mountains, they have the wine country. You know, there's a lot to offer. Okay, that's fair. So let's talk about where you are today. So
2: your role, your title is the Chief People and Culture Officer. Tell me more about that role and what it entails.
0: Sure. So essentially, I'm in charge of the human resources function at UC Berkeley. And so, but we don't call it human resources anymore. We call it people and culture. Part of it is, you know, thinking about people as resources makes me uncomfortable. Oil is a resource, right? Water is a resource. A human being is not a resource in the same way. So I was like, what is it that we're really about? What is it that we're trying to do? We're trying to support people in the organization so that they feel good at work and do a, do a great job. And we're trying to create a, a good workplace culture. So there we go. People and culture, chief people and culture officer. When I got to Berkeley and I, you know, I did my listening tour, getting to know the campus, and you know, what does the campus need from the human resources function? It was clear that they did not look at human resources as a partner. They looked at it as a place where you dreams go to die, where you ask for help, they tell you no, we can't do that. And so I needed to sort of change how the campus perceived what it was that we did. But also how the people working in the function perceived what it was that we did. That no, mm-hmm. we are here to support the campus, to support this incredible mission that attracted all of us here, and make things happen, find solutions. And so we are about the people, and we're about the culture. And so that I think it's been been there three and a half years now, and so I think it's been working. There were people who told me, "Look, man, when you change the, ni- the name, that was like trying to put lipstick on a pig." We <laughs> were rolling our eyes at you. Here right. comes the new guy. <laughs> right. He doesn't right. know. Right. Right. But right. some, you know, some of those people said, it's, it's real what you've done. And so I, I really appreciate that. And I also would say that for the team of people, there were a lot of people who were already thinking like that and just needed to be unleashed to go mm. do that kind of work. Mm. And so, so it's been like, I have a fantastic team. So it's been great from that yeah. perspective.
2: So tell me this, it sounds like you, they, you've gotten buy-in um, for a number of different reasons. As it relates to the programs, the initiatives that you've launched since you've been there, what's the one or the two that get the greatest response that, you, that you're you most proud of?
0: So I'll give you two. The first is that we created, within the human resources function, the Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. So when I got there, I said, so, you know, what do we do for DEI here at, you know, in the HR? And they're like, well, we don't have anything. I'm like, what would you mean? Like, no, we don't have anything. <laughs> I was like, well, we need to... We need to have something. Like, this what year UC was UC Berkeley, one of the greatest. This was three and a half years ago. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is not long ago. This is UC Berkeley, one of the greatest institutions. There was another part of campus that did equity and inclusion. And I'm like, well, what are we doing for staff? And I'm like, oh, that person, that position has been vacant for a while. It's <laughs> so <I'm> like, okay, <laughs> yeah. so we're, we're, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going <laughs> to hire somebody. And so we did. We put a team around them. And credit to the place where I work, where you know it's not perfect, but we they gave money, right? So there was a program that we had that was an award program that it wasn't really equitable. Like people of color weren't getting these awards at the same rate as their white con- counterparts. And I said, I can't support that we continue this program, but we can take that money and put it into DEI efforts so we can have a more equitable experience on our campus. And one of our strategic plan says in it, One of the goals is to have equitable experience for all employees on campus, right? So regardless of your demographic, you're having whatever experience you're having, but it's not because of your identity, right? And so we got a million dollars to fund this work, which is a lot of money in any situation, but a lot of money. And so we got that money in 2020, right? When the pandemic is starting, we looked at it, did the analysis, and said, yeah, let's roll this money over. Let's support this work. And so we've been able to do a lot of great programming educating our campus community about the different kinds of people who work there. And so we have what we call the equity training series, where we learn about the different populations that are present on our campus. We have an inclusive leadership program. We do consult like, so we have this very robust program around DEI. And so what I tell people is like all of the diversity and equity inclusion work that we do is ultimately so that people feel like they belong. So you show up, you see people who look like you, you have opportunities to the same extent as everybody else. You're invited into meetings. If we're doing all that, All of, if we're doing all of the D, E, and I, you will feel like you belong. And so that's my, my ultimate goal for when I think about the, the workplace, what we're going to do. The other thing that we've done that I'm really proud of is we created this program for our what you might call middle managers and executive coaching program. So managers, you all have worked in organizations, the managers get blamed for everything. That's right. It's always their fault when they don't go right. But how much support do the managers actually get so that they can do everything right? Mm-hmm. Typically, not a whole lot. They're, you know, they don't get a lot of direction, a lot of support. And so we created a program so that our managers can get individual executive coaches, get support. And so that program has been really well received. And the people who participate in it rave about it because they get they get a coach paying attention to them and their careers and their development. And it's not always manager, tell us about your employees. It's manager, tell me about you. Mm. What can we do for you to lift you up and support you? Wow. So I think that's, that for me, that's kind of a game changer because it changes how we think about our managers and the expectations that our managers can have from us as an organization for how we're going to support their careers.
2: I love that. It's almost grassroots, right? It's, it's one thing to say, yep. you know, hey, guys, from the top down, here's what we're doing. But then when you go down to those managers and say, hey, you know, how can we support you? What are the challenges you're facing? What's your feedback on the programs that we're offering? How can these be tweaked? It allows you to create a much more meaningful set of content, training, education, that's much more impactful. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's great, I love hearing that. Smiley?
1: So the question I have is more about the DEI, and it's a two-part question. DEI. It seemed like when George Floyd incident occurred, everyone started talking about DEI. Because I, I don't even remember my company, during from like 2000 to 2020, I don't even remember the position DEI. What what has been the experience? Did you always have a DEI position at your company or your 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 university?
0: So it depends on the organization. So what so. Berkeley, I mean, higher ed institutions are sort of more progressive and tend to be at the forefront of this. So they tended to have more of these positions. But even at Berkeley, it probably like there's a vice chancellor for equity and inclusion. I think that position has only existed for maybe 12 years. So it's not like we've had it for decades. Um, when I got to the community college in 2014, they were starting to hire roles like that. But I got to give credit to the state of California because in the community colleges, they up since the mid to, since 2005 or something like that, they already required for training of anybody on a hiring committee. You had to be trained on unconscious bias. and You had to be trained on the benefits of diversity. That was just the rule across all community colleges and colleges in California. That wasn't the rule at the, at the four years, like the UCs or the Cal States. So there were some very forward thinking people in the community colleges who made a huge difference. I learned that I started honing my skills in the community colleges around DEI then when I got to Berkeley and I looked around and I said, Hey, wait a minute. I expected this to be like even more advanced than the community colleges, and it wasn't. And so I was able to take a lot of that there. But I also, so when George Floyd got murdered, so I do some consulting on the side and I, I will come in and do training around hiring and DEI. I started getting a lot of calls from a lot of different organizations saying, Hey, you know, can you come and talk to us? Hey, can you help us? Organizations that I they didn't engineering organizations sort you know so everybody was paying attention to it my fear is that they they paid attention to it nobody's yelling at them anymore they feel like they did their job and they sort of have retreated back to where they were before but even if a few of them keep it going it's got to be better than it was before sure
1: no yeah the second part of the question is you in, in your bio you you graduated from stanford went to law school at michigan and now you're you're on the other side. Would you say on a scale of one to 10, your experiences from when you were undergrad in grad school from a diversity a consciousness and inclusion, and, and I love the way you said the word equity for all, your experiences back then to now, are we at a scale of a five or three or two? I know we got a long way to go, but where would we be from your perspective? As- I think
0: we've come a long way. And here, here's how I can describe it. I would say probably, so I graduated from college in 1992. And so when I went to college and let's say a black person wasn't didn't do very well in high school or something like that, it was always about, well, what are that person's family circumstances? Maybe that person isn't trying hard enough, right? It was always look at that individual and let's analyze them and figure out what, the, what that person's problem is, why they're not achieving more. Fast forward to today, to today and it's not, a, the conversation isn't about the problem with that person, it's focused more on the system. What are we as a system not doing to help these people be more successful? What, how have we failed as a system or how have I failed as an educator to adjust what it is that I'm doing so that all students are able to succeed? And so it's more now of the perspective of everybody can succeed. We as a, as a system need to figure out what we need to do to make that happen. It's not about the individual, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and all that nonsense. Right. And so I grew up in a time where, it, where that's how they talked to us. It was like, you know, are you trying hard enough? Are you doing this? Right. We didn't know mm-hmm. about systemic bias or anything like that. And so sometimes you would, you would find yourself in a situation where you blaming yourself or questioning yourself. Maybe I didn't do something right. Maybe that's why this happened to me. Uh, whereas now, Yeah, that still exists, people will still talk like that, but we we know from research that that's not what's happening. And I remember I had an incident where when I was in law school, right? So as I went to law school and I got more educated, I became more aware of how these things work. And I was interviewing at law firms and the guy who came on campus was this older white guy, right, interview was fine, whatever. I didn't get invited for like the follow-up interview, And I don't want to sound egotistical or anything like that, but I interviewed with like 20 places and everyone said, come to the follow up interview. So I I got graduated with honors. I was on the law review at law school. Right. So I'm one of the top students. And this one firm, they didn't invite me back. And I was like, well, that's strange. You know, I I don't. It must be a mistake. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it must be a mistake. And for whatever reason, I couldn't let it go. (laughs) And so (laughs) I called up the firm. And I said, I want to speak to the person in charge of hiring so I can understand why I didn't get selected. (laughs) And they gave me, you know, like, well, it was a very competitive. I said, no. I said, that can't be it because I know who you invited back from my class. And I'm a much better student than all of them. I said, so tell me something else. Well, you know, sometimes it comes down to the click between the interviewer and the candidate. I said, how is that even relevant. How am I, a black man, supposed to click with a white guy 40 years older than me? He is never going to look at me and see himself when he was younger. I said, I I didn't have a chance then, if that's what you're going to be doing things. And so that was my sort of beginning to understand how these things are, are working. And so now when we talk about like the unconscious bias trading and all of this sort of stuff, again, it's not about how I performed in the interview. We're also looking at the interviewer and how is that interviewer assessing talent or assessing potential Mm-hmm. So whereas, again, 30 years ago that, you know, we're not thinking about it like that now, it's much more present in our minds, particularly making decisions about hiring, promotion, opportunities to do a special project.
2: Sure, sure. So t- tell me this then. So, Eugene, in your role, how do you ensure that you and your team are staying up to date on, you know, the, the greatest and, and latest as it relates to the knowledge that needs to be shared throughout the the school as a whole, right?
0: Yeah, so I go to conferences, right? Like like conferences are fun, but that's also where I learn a lot from what other people are doing. Um, I'm on a couple of boards now for for higher education. And so that's a good way for me to exchange information on a nationwide level with my colleagues who are doing, let's say, cutting edge things, right? People don't associate HR with cutting edge, but it's real, we do do cutting edge stuff, (laughs) right? So I get to have those conversations, and one of the things that I do that I think is probably atypical for my position is that I read a lot of research. So we got, you know, professors doing studies all the time. I love reading the research, sociology, psychology, you know, how it relates to how people interact with each other, particularly around, you know, this DEI stuff. And so an, an example of this is I was reading a study that a professor who happened to be at Berkeley was doing in the K-12 setting to to try to reduce bias. So What you'll see in K-12 settings is that black students are suspended at higher rates than any other group of students, and which we know is that teachers look at behavior for black students and interpret in a worse way as compared to a student who's white and doing the same thing. Hmm. Um, There's an interesting preschool study where they have teachers watch these videotapes of these preschoolers, right, four years old, you know, in a classroom setting, and they say, well, which one is misbehaving? And they identify the black one more frequently than the white one, but none of the kids are misbehaving but we're so, these teachers are so wired to see the black kid and this is what they say, and this is in all of our schools. And so this particular professor did an intervention study to try to train people to be more empathetic as a way to reduce bias. And what he found is that you know, by doing different things to get teachers to be empathetic and remind them that they're there to support and to help students, help them succeed, help them overcome barriers, that then the rates of suspension and the rates of discipline went down for black students. And I read that and I was like, I bet we can do that at work. And so I called them up, we got lunch, and right now we're piloting a study to set this up at work so we can do the same kind of intervention with our managers. Because we know, like, even though we say the best things and we really mean well, the execution is a different part, and I can see the data from how we hire, and it's the same throughout the country where, you know, black people and white people might be the same proportion, in your applicant pool, but white people get hired at a higher rate, particularly when you're talking about manager jobs. Mm. So there's some sort of intervention that we need to have with the people making those hiring decisions so that it's, it's you don't have that disparate impact. So reading the research, talking to my colleagues, that that's the best way to stay relevant and stay at the front of what's going on.
1: I, I was going to say, um, Dre and I both have uh, teenagers. My daughters get ready to be 16, two years away from college what would you say, how do we identify which university has a great equity inclusive or diversity inclusive program? Because I'm sure everyone's gonna say that they have it, but is there any sort of like the three things we should look at to make sure that our our kids are going into an institution where they're gonna be accepted?
0: Those are excellent questions and I'm glad I don't have to worry about it for another eight years because my oldest is (laughs) eight years old. Okay. And so here's a couple of things that I would look for. I would look at, are there affinity groups? Or like, is there the Black Student Union? Hmm. Most places have something like that. How many students are in it? How is it funded? Is the university providing money for it? How much? Right? Is this an every year thing? So I think that's one thing. The other thing I would look at, right, because you're trying to say, is my daughter... my child going to feel comfortable there? Mm. Then I would, you know, so I would look at the demographics of the faculty, right? That's one thing, but also of the staff, right? Because your your students interact with staff as much as or more than they interact with a faculty member, right? The faculty members up in the front of the classroom. And if you're in a big lecture, they're not going to know who you are, but you have your student advisors, right? Your counselor who's going to be your support person, right? So I would look at that. I would also ask what kind of mental health support is there right this is critical now now that we are in a society where we talk about well-being more openly you know and anxiety and depression is a real thing especially for a lot of college students what kind of support does that school have for that so at berkeley for example we actually have hired counselors who specialize in supporting black students or supporting asian students Right, we've made that investment because we know that it makes a difference so, this is, so you want to look at that, you know, what sort of mental health and well-being supports does that school actually have? And so I think if, you're, if you look at that sort of stuff, you'll, be, you'll get a good sense of it. And then your, your kids probably have the opportunity, once they're admitted, to talk to students who, are, who have already been admitted. They should absolutely do that. Now, there will be an established program where they pair them with some random student. But if you want to know about the Black experience, maybe they ought to talk to a Black student and if they don't set that up for you at the school, again, if they have a black student union, they probably have a website. I would email the president of the black student union. Hey, I'm a prospective student. I want to know what the real deal is. All right, there's ways yeah. to get that information. But, but you absolutely want to get that out ahead of time because a lot of these institutions, especially predominantly white institutions, they're they are not that friendly. They're not terrible, but they're not as friendly. You know, and it was Smiley, you said you went to Dartmouth. Like, man, I, I can't imagine what that was like. Like,
1: there was no way I was going to die school, <laughs> man. <laughs> that's, that's a whole, a whole other podcast by itself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the end game, right? So what's, what's the point where you realize, I need to go ahead and just, you know, put a bow on this. I've done everything I can do. And then
0: what is that next chapter going to be? So I'm getting close to that end game. So I may not look that old, but I feel old. So I want to retire in the next, in the next five years, I want to be done. So in part because, so I've worked in California for a long time and we actually have a wonderful pension system, right? So that's helped me. So I don't have to necessarily save for retirement in the same way that somebody who doesn't have a pension would. And so that, so that's part of informed the choices I've made to be in the public sector. And so I really want to spend more time with my kids and you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would be a middle school teacher and a coach. And I pick middle school because that's wow. that age, you know, that 11, 12, 13, where a lot of kids are making tough choices, some of them not making the best choices, where they really need somebody who wants to get there and help them, right? And understands that they're going to make mistakes and really be that guide. And then for the coaching Pete, like, I, I'm a sports fanatic. I love okay. sports. My eight-year-old, I'm helping coach his little league team. I help coach soccer, like- I can't get enough of it. Fortunately, my kids like sports for now. So like they, so we can do this together, but it's something that I would love to be able to like, I like my job, right? Like, and I feel like I get to make a difference, but I would much rather be working with kids every day.
2: Okay, makes sense. So before we go uh, to the final four questions, one last question for me, um, and as it relates to this general questions, what's one thing that people don't know about you that you wish
0: they did? that they don't know about me. That's a tough one because I'm pretty transparent. I'd like to come back to that one because maybe there's a reason I don't want them to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: fair. We we had a guy on a podcaster and he said, he, he pondered for a moment and he said, a lot of my friends don't realize that I nerd out on Star Trek. And he just, he's the coolest dude, but he he just didn't have that nerve tendency, but he's like all into Star Trek, all into space movies. And he said no one knows that other than his wife, but he's just like, yeah, I just love that type of stuff. So anyway, yeah, it's there for everyone, Well, cool. Well, with the final four, we asked all our podcast guests this, and it's really just uh, to get your perspective. So imagine you're at a dinner table. There's four table, four chairs at the table. You're in one of them. Who's sitting at the other three chairs?
0: Okay. So one of them would be my first ancestor who left Africa. Cause I just want to know, man. Just want to know. Uh, because we don't. Right? We have no idea. And I really want to know. So because that clearly I've thought about that one before. <laughs> so I think I'd have to go with Jackie Robinson. You know, breaking the color barrier. Like baseball was my game. Broke the color barrier. I've seen the movies, but again, it's like, what was it really like, man? Like, it, I just can't even begin to imagine, right? And then, like, assuming people are telling the truth, like I would have Barack Obama in there again, tell me what it was like, man, being a black president. What's it like in the White House? And do we have aliens? Oh, so- <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming, but okay. <laughs> So, so maybe people do not know. So maybe I should. Maybe I'm going to undo everything I said. But I'll say two things that people don't know. <laughs> okay, so okay. I'm jumping backwards here. Oh, yeah, yeah, go I ahead. I do believe in aliens. I believe in aliens. I have not seen one or been contacted by one. Like I'm not that out there. But yeah. I just think that the universe is so huge, there has to be something out there. And then the other thing is is I do question whether or not we went to the moon. And let me tell you why, when you say this is crazy, crazy. we gotta delete the podcast. I have a good reason why.
2: Okay, tell me why. it's not
0: not a conspiracy theory. So I I, I lived in Miami for a year. I went up to go see the space shuttle launch. And then I went to the museum at Cape Canaveral where they have like the moon lander. And so until I went to that museum, I was convinced we landed on the moon. But when I went and looked at the moon lander, I was like, "There's no way in hell this thing made it out into space." <laughs> and so, I, mean, I don't really, I don't really think that we faked it. But I, right, if you go to this museum and you look at it, you'll be it like, "Raises question." No <laughs> yeah, I was just like, "This does not look like it could stand the rigor withstand the rigors of space." It looks like somebody put it together in their back. Yeah, Like, no, there's just no well, way this thing I, I'll out.
2: tell you two things. Two, two two things real quick. One is. Um, I believe weed is legal in California now. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but more, but more seriously, but more seriously, more seriously, you and Smiley could be uh, distant cousins because he has his. Go ahead, Smiley. It's, it's all your, your theories on yeah, conspiracies.
1: I, I, I have a whole, I'm a whole conspiracy theorist. A lot of things. That's like you expressed. I don't believe everything that I hear on the media. I don't think that stuff is true. And and I, I got to go and see that particular shuttle because the way you described it immediately, I thought it seems like it's a vehicle that can't survive the 101 <laughs> or the 405. <laughs> and here it is, it's blown out to the moon. So, so definitely. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> well, <That's> awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah, so
0: the what, do I have one more seat at the table? I think I have one more seat at the table. Yes. And so, I mean, I don't know who it is that badly, but like somebody, I don't know, I can't tell you the person's name, but like I've seen in movies where black people lived in Europe in like the 1700s and stuff like that. This Mm. movie out now, Chevalier, about that dude, black dude in France. I'm like, Mm. what was that like?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Right? What was, like,
0: I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated about these things from history because we don't really know, and then they didn't really tell our stories, and so it's just, mm. like, what was it really mm. like?
2: Yeah, that's fair. I like True. That. Uh, What's been your greatest success?
0: Having a family. That's easy. Mm. Okay.
1: Go. Oh, awesome. And here's one. What would you say is uniquely you, meaning your superpower? Superman flies, the Flash is really fast, the Hulk has his strength, but what is uniquely you that's your superpower?
0: So I would say that I can really multitask very well. And first of all, there's no such really thing, such thing really as multitasking. Like you can't talk and type at the same time. Like you just really, your brain can't do that, but I can switch back and forth really, really fast. That gives the illusion of multitasking. And so I can get a lot done in a very short amount of time. And the way this manifests itself at work is that I pretty much answer every email I get the day I get it. I get a lot of emails. And people always say, like, how do you do it? That's and impressive. Like, I could go back and forth, and I could type fast. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. okay.
2: That is. Um, if you were to write a autobiography, what would the title be?
0: Um, how do I say this in a way that doesn't? So, Renaissance Man. And I tell you that because I remember learning about that in high school like they could paint an instrument they could you know fencing and speak language and do all of these things and, I, and maybe that's sort of what I've modeled my life after of somebody who's like dabbled in all of these different things so you could either call it renaissance man or jack of all trades but renaissance man sounds more attractive
2: that resonates with me the reason I say that is because I was thinking about as you shared your life's journey Like, what would your kid say if someone asked, Hey, what does your dad do? Or if once you retire, someone says to you, So what did you used to do? And I mean, just because most people are like, would say, I was a doctor, I was a lawyer, or I was, and your life's journey is such that, you know, it's, there's no simple answer, which is, which, which speaks volumes about how rich, from my perspective, your life has been. Uh, so yeah, that was, that's just one, one small takeaway. Smiley.
1: Well, thank you. You know, Eugene, I want to say it's been fascinating speaking with you because you are truly indeed a Renaissance man. I mean, from your experiences of being around the world and, and working in three different disciplines, meaning industries and your language and your, 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 your experiences, I'm sure will just, uh, enlighten our listeners. So thanks for taking the time to speak with us on this day. We appreciate you.
2: You know, um, it's not often that we get a chance, and this is one of the reasons why we do the podcast, we get a chance to speak to people that have such a unique life's journey. You know, everyone thinks that, who me? I'm I'm just your everyday guy. And once they get on and start, you know, even I think sometimes even they surprise themselves when they start talking about their, their life and what they have accomplished, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, again, we we definitely appreciate you taking your time to to, uh, to share your life with us.
0: Well, thank you for having me, and have a great afternoon.